Welcome to the Flourishing After Addiction podcast. I'm Carl Eric Fisher, an addiction psychiatrist and bioethicist at Columbia University and a person in recovery. In this podcast, I'm exploring addiction and recovery through deep dive interviews with people who are all working toward flourishing after addiction. Scientific researchers, artists and writers, clinicians, spiritual teachers, people with lived experience, and generally people who are working on how to change and grow or helping others to do so. My goal is to distill their experience and wisdom into accessible, practical lessons focused on flourishing and change without watering down this important topic. I believe addiction is one of the most fascinating topics in all of psychiatry, philosophy, and human life, one that has tremendous potential to help us all better understand how to flourish. If that sounds interesting to you, head over to my website. I have other resources and materials about addiction and recovery there. Sign up for my newsletter and you'll get a free guide I made about the many pathways to recovery. I'll also send you updates about books, research papers, and other things I'm studying and exploring. The email list is the only way to get several of those resources and newsletters, so if you're interested, please sign up. You can find all of that over at carlericfisher.com. Today, it's my great pleasure to be speaking with a true pioneer in the field of psychotherapy and of psychological research in general, Stephen Hayes. Professor Hayes is the Nevada Foundation Professor of Psychology in the University of Nevada, He's an author of 47 books and nearly 650 scientific articles, and he's especially known for his work on acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, one of the most widely used and researched new methods of psychological intervention over the last 20 years, and a psychotherapy that I have tremendous respect and interest in. He has received several national awards, the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Association of Behavioral and Cognitive Therapy, and has written popular books as well, such as Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life which for a time was the best-selling self-help book in the United States, and a newer book, A Liberated Mind, which is excellent, I recommend highly, has been released to wide acclaim. Google Scholar ranks him as one of the most highly cited scholars in all areas of study in the world. But much more important than that, he is a soulful, introspective, and wise practitioner. He himself is in recovery and talks openly about being in recovery from panic disorder, and the way that the therapies and the insights that he has developed have been so important to his own life and his own recovery. I'll mention just as a taste, because I think it might help to set the stage for the conversation as well. He mentions this concept called psychological flexibility. It's a term that's used in ACT, in acceptance and commitment therapy, and a very simple and straightforward definition of psychological flexibility just means contacting the present moment fully as a conscious human being, and then based on the situation, changing behavior and directing action toward chosen values. There are many different ways of summing up this concept. Professor Hayes discusses a couple other ways of summarizing psychological flexibility, and there are certainly much more complicated definitions, which we don't get into, but I thought it'd be good to introduce that concept at the outset. I also wanted to mention that he talks about a new paradigm for therapy, which we didn't unfortunately get to talk about all that much, but for those of you who are in the mental health field or who are interested in psychotherapy training or learning. He's co-authored a book recently on process-based therapy, which I'll link to in the show notes that is very interesting and very good, again, for clinicians. And then uh, finally, there's a psychological exercise here, almost like a meditation. He leads us through about an eight or nine minute exercise, a self-perspective taking exercise toward the end of the interview, which I loved. I found it really powerful and really useful 
And I wanted to say this at the outset because if you'd like to, please take the time to do it yourself. I don't think you'll regret it. If there's anything at all you're struggling with or, or wondering about or curious about a problem or a, a challenge in your life, it's a lovely visualization and perspective-taking exercise. Of course, don't do it if you're driving or operating heavy machinery or anything like that. But if, if sometime in the next half an hour or so, you can get yourself to a quiet place where you can sit and really focus on it, I think that you will enjoy it. And otherwise, I hope you enjoy our conversation. All right. I'm very excited to be here with Dr. Stephen Hayes. Steve, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Awesome to be here with you, Carl. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Great. So, Steve, there's so much we could talk about. I, I think we could have a five-hour seminar. I've got so many questions on my monitor here, but I'll try to keep it focused. And I thought one way to get our feet under us might be to talk about the problem itself, like getting clear on what people struggle with when they struggle with addiction, in your view. Just to give a little background, you've spoken out a lot against the biomedicalization of human suffering that we we too readily conceptualize suffering through diagnostic labels and try to make it into a discrete, separate entity. And that's something that's really strong in addiction. I think a lot of people haven't inherited that view about addiction. So can you just start us off by telling us, how do you think of addiction? How would you make sense of the phenomenon? Sure. I mean, the resistance to those top-down normative categories is that they blur people in the specific ways that you know people get into the situations that they're in and, and the goals they have going forward. And you have to be impressed with things, you know, like motivational interviewing and things like that, where you just sort of dial that all back and say, well, you know, really, what do you want, et cetera? And it's just a power, more powerful conversation. It's a little harder in the addictions to you know, back out fully because, of course, these are biologically addictive substances that we're talking about. But, you know, many, many, many different kinds. And sometimes people partition it that way. It doesn't give you that much power to do it that way. And many different pathways in. I mean, some people are, come in through really painful histories that they're dampening down emotionally using substances. Some people come in as a substance, as a way to belong, connect, be part of a group, etc. You know, some people uh, come in because they have other kinds of behavioral or mental health uh, problems, and this is just a reflection of a larger set of things. And then when you dip, dive into the specifics of that, and there's more categories, you could do that for a while. All of those are specific. So there's a kind of a clustering that happens with any label that can turn people into error terms and sort of make them blurry. And I think if we're going to really get traction on these uh, kinds of problems, it's a good idea to focus on the processes that brought you into it, the processes that can carry you out of it, what your goals and aspirations are. And that's what we've been trying to get to with all this syndromal thinking anyway. What's the etiology? What's the course with the response to treatment? And it never seems to get there. Well, let's go there right now. What are the specific features in your life that walked you into this addiction, that has walked you up or down into the cycle of greater and greater addiction that could walk you out? And there, 
there's a really kind of hopeful message, which is sometimes people feel like the Lone Ranger, like really so strange, so odd out in the corner of the universe when they're struggling with an addiction. But no, you're you're right inside the things that are, everybody struggles with to a degree. I mean, some of the same processes that lead to anxiety or lead to depression or lead to procrastination or lead to relationships breaking up or leading to you know, not uh, having a sense of meaning and purpose in your life and on and on are the same things that under the right or wrong set of circumstances will create a problem with you in this area of the, of, of the addiction. So let's view people as whole persons and not just, you know, here's another addict. You know, you can do that to yourself. You can dehumanize yourself that way. And uh, we certainly do it to others, even providers, too. You know, if you dig into the data on the implicit bias and you start doing things like, you know, implicit measures of cognition. I, I remember, uh, you know, asking well, an addiction counselor uh, confessing to me that he was shocked to find things like, uh, you know, he's walking past somebody who's passed out on the street and, and he's his mind's giving them stuff like, you know, another effing addict. And, but, you know, I, this kind of objectification and dehumanization is in us. And uh, it's in folks who are struggling with addictions. And I think we need to find a way to empower people to live lives with purpose and to be able to claim their lives back. Mm. That's really helpful. And I appreciate centering the human rather than some sort of purported disease process or biochemical situation. So maybe we can talk more about the processes and for people who aren't familiar, psychological flexibility and psychological rigidity are really at the heart of a lot of your thinking. Yes. Can you talk a little more about like what are the processes that lead people to getting stuck in addictive patterns in your view? Yeah, it's a great question. And we've really been chasing that just more generally across uh, mental illness, mental health, substance abuse problems. What are the processes? We just finished a massive a systematic review where we looked at every study ever done with those kinds of outcomes and randomized trials and where they had claimed to find what's called a successful mediator, you know, it's a statistical mm -hmm. way of determining what is the what is a functionally important pathway of change the proximal steps that occurred that predicted long-term positive outcomes and uh, psychological flexibility and mindfulness accounts for almost half of every finding that's ever happened in the history of the planet which shocked me and it's not because they're all act studies it's because acceptance and commitment therapy act is the work that i do that was tied to psychological flexibility but no, these kinds of processes just are the ones that move with successful therapy very often. And the other ones that are there actually are quite friendly to a psychological uh, flexibility perspective. You know, at 35,000 feet with psychological flexibility, we're just talking about the ability to to show healthy variation that you can select and retain the winners, you know, being able to behave in different ways and focus on what moves you forward and behind and being able to identify what the ones are that move you forward. Now, in the more common way we talk about it, that would mean 
across these dimensions of if we just go to the psychological side that you know your emotions are able to be felt and learned from in a way that's open open and non-clinging yeah, that your uh, thoughts can be seen and listened to and help you out but also can be respectfully declined to dominate your experience so uh, in a way that fosters cognitively flexible and effective thinking that you could come into the present moment and sort of be there inside and out and not disappear into the conceptualized past of rumination or the conceptualized and feared future of worry and that you can do it from a more spiritual sense of self the part of you that is not constantly being judged and categorized oh i'm like this and i'm like that and i'm talking about the eye that notices all that that showed up when you became conscious of your consciousness around age three and uh, this sort of person behind your eyes that's been there all along and it provides a foundation from which you can make some choices and carry hard histories and and then if you do those four things those are pretty good kind of operational definition of mindfulness I mean, I don't care if you call it mindfulness, and I'm not trying to say it's the same as what Buddhists or Hindus or anybody else think. I'm just saying in the Western world, we're now using the word mindfulness to talk about clusters of uh, concepts of that kind. And that is important because it sort of brings you into your life as it is in the moment as it is consciously. But all of that is so that you can then focus on what brings meaning and purpose to your life you know what do you really want to stand for reflect and be about and how can you build habits around that instead of building habits around your fears and uh, urges and impulses and um, that's psychological flexibility you want to cluster it to a simpler thing it's being more open aware and actively life no that's good that's great that's a I think a beautiful articulation of a, maybe an ideal, I don't know if you would call it an ideal, but my understanding as your view is that's not the natural homeostatic state of human existence. So we get caught in all sorts of traps that impair our flexibility. And I, I saw you in an interview talking about, I thought this was such a nice little framing, but talking about the dict part of addiction, like dicta or adichere, like being spoken to like a dictator. So I was wondering if you could speak more about that part of getting stuck. Oh, yeah, because, you know, you said this is not where we naturally would go. Well, I don't know, without language, we might, without cognition, higher cognition, symbolic. That's the evolutionary new dog in the pan, you know, and our learning systems are half a billion years old. How do you know that? Well, every species that evolved since the Cambrian, which is 545 million years ago, does operate in classical conditioning and all that. Habituation is a little earlier. And there's neurobiological processes, multicellular organisms that are even before that. Mm -hmm. But here we've got this new kid on the block, what you and I are doing right now. And what you and I are doing right now, arguably no other creatures on the planet do. There's that old joke. I, I hope I'm not offending by reminding of it, you know, but, you know, what's the difference between a, a dog and an alcoholic who's let in out of the rain? And the answer is an hour later, the alcoholics is still whining about the, the rain. Mm. And it it's not just about alcoholics. That story is about all of us, right? I mean, we are into 
why was it like this? And I should have been like that. And this isn't fair. Or I'm the worst of the worst. I'm the lowest of the low. And on and on it goes. And your dog or cat can't do that. If you're kind to your dog or cat and you have food and shelter and warmth, you know, they live, as we say, a dog's life. But here we are with everything, with the ability to talk to you. And I mean, you're thousands of miles away through what we've invented just within the last 20 years or whatever. I mean, look at the spectacular world we've created. Oh, my God. Where really no one would have to starve if we just were more careful about how we distributed our resources. Almost no one would have to, you know, have not have shelter. And on and on it goes. We live longer. We have less violence now than we ever had in the history of the world. And I know the TV screens say it's worse and worse, but it's not. They're the full statistics. You wouldn't want to live, I mean, a thousand years ago, people were just look at the, you know, their bones, you know, they're getting beat up and they're right. It was a harder life. But boy, inside our heads, this can be the most miserable life, even with people who love us, with opportunities to contribute, with fantastic you know, things around us that are almost unbelievable. If you think about it, like you can talk to anyone in the world in a matter of seconds. So I would like to flip that instead of saying, yeah, that's the ideal, but and say something more like this. Why is it so freaking hard to be human? I can understand it if you're living in the war zone or if you're starving, I get it. But how many people do you treat where that's the history. That's not the history. I know there's trauma, there's diff- but even then, the, the trauma is often by parents who are so out there. I mean, my dad was an alcoholic. I used to say it was, I, would, I ended up on the, the uh, council for the National Institute on Drug Abuse, where 12 people get to decide technically that's not really whether how those billion dollars are going to be spent. And I had this thought, like, why am I even here? I'm not even really an addiction researcher. I'm not. I research anything that comes in front of me that is interesting and links to processes of change. And at one point in there, I went like, oh, you know, my dad was an alcoholic. You know, I'm going to Alateine members when I'm 12 or 13, you know, and I've got family members who struggled with addiction. And so I've seen the dark side, you know. And, uh, but when I dig into the history, what I see is human beings getting in their own way. You know, when I look, really look at my dad, dead long since, lovely man, but oh my God, you wouldn't want to be around him when he was drunk. Well, when he was a happy drunk, he was okay, but when, you know, it was very unpredictable. And so you'd just run and hide because it wasn't safe. And my point there being, even when people have these horrific histories, often it's because other people are not handling whatever they had. You know, like me hiding under the bed is not a good history. That's not how we're eight-year-olds should be. But, you know, I look at my dad and I say, okay, you know, his dad got up and said, I'm going to go get some milk from the refrigerator and then was never, you know, it was dead on the floor of a heart attack. He wanted to be a pitcher, and he was a 
world-class college athlete. And then he threw out his arm stupidly. And in just an instant, the dream was gone. And on and on it goes in these tragedies that happen to everybody. And uh, I asked him once why he drank so much. And he said, if I'm going to have pain like that, and if I'm going to die, I don't want to die sober. You know, so he made it really clear what he was doing. There's one example. He drank from emotional avoidance. Turns out later I found out he was also on massive amounts of tranquilizers and anti-anxiety things while he was drinking. <laughs> yeah, not uncommon. Three sheets to the wind from morning to night. You know, he's just looped. You know where he was, and that's what he wanted. But it ruined his health, and it ruined his family life, and not always. He was a lovely, lovely man, but and did a lot for the world and for his kids, but also got in his own way, and all three of us have struggled with our mental health, the kids. So isn't that the stories? And when so when you ask, you know, well, what about, you know, that's the ideal, but I say, well, why not? And my answer, why isn't that? And my answer is, is because we don't know how to get out of our own way. And as behavioral health specialists, it's our job to figure that out. And putting people into categories hasn't been very powerful. If you, if you, if you just look, are our problems going down or up in the world? Are our mental health and addiction problems going down or up in the world over the last 50 years? With everything that we've done. And the answer clearly is they're going up. What's up with that? I mean, we're doing something wrong. What I'm talking about, I mean, the whole world is doing something wrong. But we, as behavioral health specialists, this is our job. If it's not our job, whose job is it? We are not doing our job. I don't mean we're not working hard. We're working really hard. But working hard and doing well is two different things. And so, time's up. Push the reset button. I want to do something profoundly different. And I have a pretty good idea of what might make a better difference. And it isn't just the act work I'm doing. I have an idea for, and I'm working hard for how to create a different kind of field that parses its problem in a different way. Going back to what you were talking about, I didn't know that you were involved in Ality. And I knew from your other writing that you you were very curious about humanistic methods, mindfulness practices, the human potential movement, meditation, yoga, psychedelics, etc. And one word you used was spirituality. And you've been touching up on existential themes throughout all of this too. You know, so some of those things might be labeled new age and put in a, a more secular box that's just about so-called self-development. But the, a lot of those other things too, like meditation, yoga, psychedelics, even even twelve step groups like Alatine, posit a spiritual awakening or a spiritual change. So, can you talk about your experiences with with spirituality specifically and how how they helped you with anxiety and how they got into ACT? Yeah, actually, the very 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 first ACT article on what becomes ACT and relational frame theory, the geeky. Uh work on what cognition is that's underneath it because as I say I think it is the clash between this new kid on the block that's quarter million to 2.8 million years old uh, we know that because your 12 month old baby does what leads to language then the language trained chimps don't and we split off from them 2.8 million years ago 
well, that's so recent, you know, we're just babies learning how to manage this thing. Just, but the very first article after my night on the carpet, you know, when I, my anxiety disorder spun me down to the point where I can hardly breathe. I have a TEDx talk that walks, that walks through that if people want to find it. It was called Making Sense of Spirituality. Because it seemed to me that, because I had about, well, one thing, I had kind of an out-of-body spiritual, what you could say, experience. Nothing special about it. Turns out that if you ask the questions right, more than 90% of adult human beings say that they've had such experiences. They tend to have kind of a characteristic quality to them and form. And spirituality, I think, is a place from which it's possible to open your eyes, open your heart, and sort of see that the complexity of your own history and and what it tells you. And you want to do that because if wisdom comes, it comes from experience. There is another other way. It's not fairy dust sprinkled into your head, and it's not just books you're going to read. You've read a lot of, you've met a lot of people in your life who are pretty unwise and read a lot of books. No, you're going to have to find a way to integrate that and to be able to bring it into your life. And that's a challenge. That's our life challenge. And we're never finished. But it starts, I think, if you really want to put that journey on steroids, find that part of you that doesn't have a life and death stake on thinking this, feeling this, remembering this, having done that, because you're going to be asked to carry pain. You've done things that betrayed others. You've done things that are shameful. You've seen loss. You've been betrayed yourself. You've been physically in pain. You've been psychologically in pain. And if you haven't, as Yoda said, you will be. Because what's ahead? And what's ahead is loss and death of your compatriots and of you. Wake up. What do you think this is? You think you're like, you know, an angel dancing on the head of a pen? You better be learning. And learning how to be wise. And you need to do that, a part of you that's safe, that's stable, that's has a, a little taste of the internal and the universal. And spiritual experiences have this quality. As I say, they're nothing great and grand. They're very common. And I like thinking about them that way because they're just built into the human condition. And there are times when you have felt especially connected across people, maybe with your lover or friend or whatever, where you just felt a, a we that was so dominant that you're just blended in a healthy way, included. You know, the group matters. That's the kind of primates we are. We're social primates. It extends across time where you have a feeling as though the, you know, the, categories, the seconds, the hours, the, I only got so much time left, or how much time it'll take me to do this kind of blends away, and you're just in the, the now. And it has this sense of universality across place, and that what's going on at the other parts of the world are somehow relevant to you, even if you don't know what they are, and you can kind of sense humanity itself and its expansion across time, place, and person, even beyond the earth. You know, you get a whole earth ethic, but even beyond the earth that we really do, we're part of the universe. Yeah. Now, 
those experiences lead to religious beliefs and practices that at their best foster and build that at their worst turn into the exact opposite i mean almost every major religion that somebody had a mystical experience that included those things universality across time place and person they came back started talking about it they tried to help others experience it they tried to build out because in this space is more loving kind compassionate connected you know way of being in the world and soon enough it became dogma and then there was practices and then you start killing people who don't believe and then you know you can trash anything if you get into this other version of judgment and criticism and self-blame and shame so i think the addiction traditions because of 12 step and other things but also because it's so challenging i just said this way look if you have an addiction and it's really dug in you are now facing a behavior change problem that's among the most difficult behavior change problems in the world and you know people say why can't i just stop using and i i flip it around i say how the hell can you ever stop using there's no animal models of stopping using if you train a monkey to push a manipulandum to self inject addictive substance as long as the manipulandum is there and the substance is there, that's it for the rest of their life. There's not a single example of a monkey AA group. It's never happened. And so other than taking away the substance because it's no longer available, their sobriety is impossible. There's no animal models of sobriety. There are with human beings. Why? because we can value we can care we want something more than where am i going to get my next fix and at its worst you know how can i steal enough money or rob enough people or do enough tricks or i mean you look at what addiction will take from you at its worst it'll take everything your life but on the way your dignity your morality and people do find a way to put addiction down it's amazing it's spectacular it's like the olympic athletes of mental health is people who put that bottle down or put that needle down and not just putting it down but find a life that's worth living mm -hmm. i couldn't agree more I, that's beautifully said that um the stakes are so high in cases of addiction that people become the olympic athletes of flourishing well-being and recovery and you you were saying that because the stakes are so high and because it's so difficult to change behaviors that people turn to spirituality that sometimes maybe there's a greater need that somebody else who's like bumbling through life not to judge or criticize but somebody somebody who has like low to mid-grade anxiety they don't have the life or death imperative to find spirituality to save their life but it sounds like you're saying it becomes it just becomes much more necessary in so many people with addiction yeah and i'll say this in a way that is very dangerous because i know it'll come back at me so i want to do some things before i say it which is i'm not meaning this as a pollyanna thing or the you know the the golden edge of the cloud thing or something like this but on the other side you know, you can see addiction as a blessing. 
because it so challenges our same old, same old way of being. And you could get away with it. If all you had were kind of minor problems, you can basically sleep your way through life, go mindless through life, and probably kind of sort of get away with it. I mean, your relationships won't be exactly what you want. And, but, uh, you know, the, the kind of walking dead that sometimes happens, you can't do it with addiction. This is such a gut check, such a, you know, gut punch that if you're not ready to really dig in, now I don't mean to, have to figure it out and understand it and get all mindy. I don't mean that. Nobody's asking to be the philosopher of the world just because you have an addiction. No, I mean you have to learn about human resilience and where it comes from. And spirituality is the foundation for most people, I find. And I would say also from that spiritual sense of self, being able to open up to your own history so that wisdom can come because that's where you can learn, but only if you're open enough to listen and learn and not be dominated or not cling. And to care, to make choices about what's of importance. And that last one is where almost everyone I've seen walk out of addiction, where they find themselves to a point of what I want to be about. You know, enough is enough. You know, that hitting bottom moment that we talk about in addictions, what is that? It's that moment of enough is enough. You know, I no, I am not walking that pathway. And out of that, sometimes in a moment where you have no alternative, you don't know what the alternative is. Strangely enough, if you really hit that in a way that's open, Often there's like a little whisper that's been there all along. It's like being in a cage with a door that looks like it's locked, but it's actually easily opened. It's been there all along of step by step, one step at a time. A lot of wisdom in the addiction traditions. Find that lighthouse in the distance and don't declare yourself there. I'm so great and grand. No, that's, you know, that's right before you have a relapse, you know. You know, never say never, ever again. You know, and I, I believe in that part of it. As a panic disordered person in recovery, I believe in that part of it. But then one step at a time, keep your eye on the prize and walk that difficult walk one day at a time, one moment at a time with your wisdom from the foundation of your spirituality with your eye on the prize and those things we do like in 12 step, you know, with a little prize for the one month sober and stuff like that. It looks cheesy, but no, it isn't. It's, it's a way of saying you're walking a new journey here and you're going to do it one step at a time, one day at a time, one moment at a time, and you're not going to ever be finished. You can never hundred percent say, okay, well, I don't have to think about that. Well, you don't have to necessarily think about it constantly, but you do have to sort of be with the fact that you're on this finite but endless or limitless journey of creating a values-based life. Now, those things just so happen to be the three pillars of psychological flexibility. I, when I first said it, I said there's six. But if you go back and listen to the tape, you know, the first two are, you know, learning to be open. The next ones are learning to ground that in that spiritual sense of yourself. 
And the next one is to be actively engaged in a values-based life, open, aware, and active. And But they all go together. It's called psychological flexibility. And when you're mismanaging it, it's psychological inflexibility. And that can be mismanaged a hundred different ways, which is where we started our conversation. How do people get into addiction? They get into the mismanaging of their own thoughts, feelings, present moment focus, who they are as a person, values, and their ability to engage in overt habits and actions. Yeah, great. Let's bite off a piece of that to uh, take a selective topic and hopefully make it a little more tangible. That's a beautiful setup. Let's go to the, the one that I think is toughest for most people out of those pillars, the, the self, the ideas about the self, because that I think that's a nice segue with the spirituality piece. You're talking about universality and transcendence and you know the self-pivot in ACT therapy is about transcending and going back to that that safe eye, I think you called it, the, the eye that sees, the eye that notices, the eye that is aware and conscious. So that, that can sound a little hairy, I think, to a lot of people. Yeah, it does. <laughs> well, because the mind, the verbal, categorical, judgmental mind doesn't really get it because there's no it there. It's, it's not an it. I mean, there's no edges of your consciousness that you're conscious of. Think about that. Well, that means... Everything is an it because you know the edges. If I had a pen and I look at it, it's because there's differences between pen and not pen. If there's no edges to consciousness, how do you know where consciousness ends? And the answer is you believe it ends. You know you can be unconscious and go to sleep, but you can't be conscious of it. So there's a part of you that is not thing-like. And, you know, you look up in the dictionary is what spirit is. It'll say not material. Mm-hmm. Yes. Look at what material is, let's say the stuff of which things are made. And look up more things, there are events of spatio-temporal entity, uh, ed, uh, limits or edges. So we have a taste of the universal, of something that's more, you might say, even uh, deity-like. And if you just look at the features that we ascribe to God, I mean, they're everywhere, always, everything. Sounds like that movie. Good movie, actually. <laughs> We're always at everything. Uh, and kind of on this issue in a funny way. But so let's bring it into a practical thing. How would you actually get to the little taste of, let's say, I don't know how to manufacture a spiritual experience. And, you know, even the talk of God and so forth and 12 step freaks me out. And what are you, the hell are you talking about? You know, I'm just, uh, well, okay. If you're, person who's meditated or prayed or anything, you probably have a taste of it. But this is a person, if you just kind of sit and watch, here's an easy way to do it. And let's do it with something you're really struggling with. Can I do a little exercise? Yeah, sure. All right. It'll it'll take a couple, three minutes, maybe four or five. But to do it, you just have to find something that you're struggling with personally, you know, that's difficult, you know, that's hard for you psychologically. And it's here now. And so you can do it as eyes closed or you can just sit with me. Imagine that you sort of reach inside yourself and get that whole ball of wax, whatever it is. But that whole set of issues that's involved is something that's difficult and sort of metaphorically put it on your lap. 
sort of reach in, pull it out. It has thoughts in there. It has feelings in there. It has memories in there. It has urges in there. It has things you've done, things you want to do. It has physical sensations. It probably has a lot of things. If you just slowed it down and look, you may start with a little kernel, you know, like I'm not lovable or I did something that was really wrong. What if this happens or what, but whatever it is, is probably more complex than that. So take a little time just to not analyze, but appreciate that this is a, a whole set of issues and that you don't quite know how to handle it. You don't quite know what to do with it. That's why your mind gave it to you to do this little exercise. What do I do with this? And then lingering in that question, but not getting to an answer yet. Imagine that you've left your body and you're looking back at yourself right now. And take just a little time to see yourself. What your face looks like, what your hair looks like, what clothing you're wearing. And then to remember, you can't see it from the outside, but from the inside, just moments ago, you know you've got that thing in your lap. And my question to you right now, but don't answer it, just linger inside this question. What do you feel towards that person called you? Are you a good person, a whole person, a complete person? You've got that thing in your lap. Do you like this person that you're looking at? You love this person that you're looking at? Just let the questions linger. Don't come to a big final answer or something, but just notice what it looks like to look back at yourself and have those kind of questions and remember that there's a thing on your lap. And then in your mind's eye, go to the side of the room. Pick either side. Just go to the side of the room. And then turn around, look back at yourself, still sitting there or lying down or wherever you are. And you just might remember we're doing this in a, a podcast and there may be hundreds of people doing this right now. Right at this moment, they're doing the same thing. You're not the only one doing this odd thing. And notice from afar what you look like. You might appreciate the fact that you look like this now, but you used to look different. You used to be small. You used to be a kid. Then you grew up. And you can't see the thing in your lap, but you remember it. And you know it's a challenge. That's why you picked it. And I bet you it's been a challenge for a while. It isn't just now. That issue, some form of it, has been around a while. And then looking from afar, who do you feel about this person called you with that thing in your lap? You're looking at a, a whole human being, a valued human being, a lovable human being. What are you looking at? And do you like this person? Do you love this person? And what about that thing in your lap? What should that person do 
And before answering that, you realize, this isn't happening now. This is a memory. I was listening to this podcast and this weird guy had this weird exercise where we, you know, left your body and then went to the side of the room. And, and I remember what it was like. And it's years later now. And you're much wiser. Life has opened up in important ways. You become more fully who you are and who you're meant to be. But you remember. I remember what it was like all the way back in, what was it, 2022? And I had that freaking thing. And I didn't know what to do. Man, I wish I could have given myself a little bit of advice. Because I see it from this wiser future in a different way. I wish I could go back in time and whisper in my own ear. And through the magic of memory, you can do that. Because what would you want to say to yourself from this wiser future? How can this person called you be with him or herself in a way that is empowering in this moment, even way back when, in that moment, even with that thing that used to so dominate you. And if you could put it in just a sentence or a few words, what advice would you give to yourself that would bump it forward? And whatever it is, just allow that to form in your mind. And kind of write it down like a note, which we will hold in memory because we'll bring it back to the present. As you've written that advice, come into the present moment and you're on the other side of the room looking back at yourself, but you got this note. We'll just put it in your pocket of advice from the wiser future and then walk back over to yourself appreciating who you're looking at and that thing in your lap and stand in front of yourself and remembering what you said from the wiser future. Take a moment just to appreciate some how hard it is to be human. How hard it is with things like what's in your lap and spin around and sit back inside your body Take just a breath and notice, yeah, you still have that squirmy, wormy ball of all kinds of stuff in your lap, but you also got that note and bring it back in, but this time with kindness and with choice, as if to say, it's okay to be me, even with my history and the painful things that I'm asked to deal with. And remembering that you just did a journey with maybe hundreds of other people, each with their stuff on their lap and each with their notes on their pocket. And take just a second to, if your eyes have been closed, to think about what the room will look like. If that stuff in your lap is back safely inside, you remember that external environment and just for fun, see if you can remember what's likely to be on the ceiling or walls as you open your eyes and then come on back.
So I think that went more like eight or nine minutes than four or five. But my, if I were to do this and where we had streaming, I'd ask people to chat what the note from the future said. Uh, if you're willing to share, I mean, it's a lot to ask and it's not fair, Carl, really. But if you could distill it down to something that's safe and you can share, I notice you're trying to do this with me. Oh, of course. Yeah. People say a few words. Like yeah, what? People say you should do a podcast to get free advice or free coaching and only ask questions you yourself actually want to know the answer to. So this is a beautiful gift and I appreciate it. I know the audience will too. Yeah. I'm happy to just say what it was. It's a keep going with love. All right. Does that sound wise to you? Yes. That sounds wise to me too. And you know what? We were just talking earlier, and can you see the space we were talking about earlier that was a little spooky, a little weird, what are you talking about? Blah, blah, blah. Here it is. It's in you. And I would bet that 90% of the folks, if 95% of the folks, and there's a little bit of additional work, 100% of the folks listening, can connect into that, which means you have wisdom within, you have resources within. And what I'm talking about, it's not spooky, it's not weird. Mm -hmm. It's what you already know. Now, what does this have to do with spirituality? We just said earlier, what happened with spirituality is you expand across time, place, and person. What did I do? Instead of talking about spirituality, I mean, the very word ab out, you know what it means? Near but out. <laughs> I don't want to be ab out. I want to be in. And what I did was just say, okay, if spiritual experiences expand across time, place, and person, let's expand across time, place, and person. We had two persons, you look back at yourself and I could ask some questions, you know, is this a lovable human being, etc. Then we did space, we went over there and looked back over here. Then we did time, we went to a wiser future, look back, could have done differently. I could have taken yourself and take you down to be a little kid. And what would you say to yourself when you first started suffering? But I deliberately manipulated person, place, and time. And what shows up is a witnessing, noticing sense of self that very naturally is wiser. Because from that point of self, what's in your lap is not threatening. It's just interesting. It's just like, oh, yeah, that. From that point of view, you're open to your experience. From that point of view, you can be present. And from that point of view, you can take the risk to care. And look at what you said. I mean, you said love matters, basically. Didn't you? Well, that creates a risk, doesn't it? If you know that love matters, it's painful when you're betrayed in love, for example. It's painful when you do unloving things to yourself. But that pain is not a threat. It's just a reminder of how important that is to you. But you can't turn pain into a reminder unless you have a solid place to stand. And you do. You have a spiritual part of you. Now, I don't want to ontologize it and turn it into a thing because it's not thing-like anyway. So let's just accept that it's a bit of a mystery because it's not it-like. And there's a reason why, you know, the religious traditions say don't give it got a name or if you do at least don't say it yeah one of my favorite zen sayings is open mouth already a mistake exactly the one becomes two 
Mm. And then as soon as you start speaking, you're dividing and slicing and chopping. And there's a part of you that's whole Mm -hmm. and knows it as a birthright. So enough words. Let's tap into that experience and allow it to empower a journey that's hard. If you're struggling with addiction, it's a hard journey. But can it make a little more sense when I say it's actually a blessing? Mm-hmm. I've written the same myself, that in the end, I'm I'm grateful for my own experience of addiction for precisely the reasons we've been talking about. And despite the fact that it is very, very hard sometimes. There's one more question I wanted to, at the risk of saying too much <laughs> in too many words, there's one more <laughs> question on the specific topic of working with difficulties that I wanted to make sure for people who are listening, because it's been sort of a theme that other guests have talked about too. And I see that you've written and spoken on it. Shame and guilt. You've targeted shame in people dealing with eating and people with substance use disorders. You've also drawn the distinction between shame and guilt. Can you talk about the importance of guilt and shame, what they do for us, how they get in our way, how we work with them? Yeah. What With shame, what you're allowing to happen is the wise pain that comes from failing to be who you want to be in some way, which is corrective. You want to be in pain when you didn't live up to who you want to be with other people, when you did things that were harmful to to others. You want to feel a sense of guilt when you did things that were harmful to your body to your family, to those that you love, to your clients or your the things that you, the work that you do. And it shows that guilt is actually a pathway to repair. If you didn't know that you'd, and have an emotional connection to that a wrong was done, why would you ever repair? Yeah, but shame says, and it happened like that, because you're bad. There's something wrong with you. You're broken. Where you're allowing this deeper sense, spirituality that is inherently whole and loving and open, and you're turning it into an it, and then you're pounding on it and making it the source of the behavior that you're feeling guilty about. Well, That's tantamount to, I will need to run a race. It's called life. Step one, cut yourself off at the knees. Mm -hmm. Really bad idea. You know, you're going to need the whole you to live a life that's worth living. It's not, your mind tells you you'll do better if you just beat yourself about the head and ears. Your heart and your experience tells you you do worse. So enough already. Here's what I would say. You want to be guilty about something? How about being guilty about shame? Mm -hmm. Because you didn't have to do shame. You don't have to treat yourself as a horse to be whipped. What was that in the service of? You say, oh, so that I would stop doing it. Look more closely. Shame is the emotion that is the grease on the wheels to more of the same. I mean, inside your shame about, you know, your last, uh, you know, relapse, you're microseconds away from another relapse. 
After all, what can we expect of you? You're no good. You can't expect anything of a person like that. Be careful. The mind will give you poison and tell you that it's sugar. And, you know, it's, it is not a sweet journey that, sh that shame I'm bad. So we did one of the first big randomized trials on shame in addictions. I think it may have been the first. It was a big one and it was focused on it specifically. And here's what we found in an approach that's more like what I'm talking about here, which is the ACT approach. Shame came down slowly, but life opened up consistently. In the usual approach, you could force shame down quickly, but it rebounded. And it turned out that forcing it down was, in a suppressive way, was actually predictive of relapse. So here's what you need to do. If you've been shaming yourself, you need to one step at a time learn how to stand with yourself as whole and free in the way that I'm talking here. And it isn't like, oh, oh, I've realized, you know, and I'm never going to do it again. I, went, I remember doing an act group in an inpatient facility here in Nevada, where in Nevada we have cowboy conservatism and we don't spend money on addiction. You know, we literally ship people to California and hope they'll get treatment. We got caught doing that and pay a big fine. So you have to fight to get into an inpatient program and they're not well funded and, you know, the good hearted professionals and so forth. But, and I remember running an act group and saying, having a person saying, you're bringing me down. You know, I've been here for three days and I realized that God loves me and, I'm never going back. And she was back in the facility four weeks later. Mm -hmm. The rosy glow, the pink cloud that we talk about in addiction. You know, the Stuart Smalley thing is not a solution. So you're going to need to walk out of shame in this way that allows you to open up to a possibility that is beyond what your mind can conceive, which is that you're a whole and free human being. And you have a lot to be guilty of, feel guilty about. <laughs> and you have a tremendous power to create a life worth living. So breathe it in. Show up. Take the gut punch. Treat it as a gut check. And step forward in that one step at a time, hard journey called sobriety. And it's there for you. Not because it's easy, but because you're the kind of person who can write a note to yourself in the future like that. It's a beautiful note to end on, maybe literally. Steve, before you go, I just have one, one final personal question that I thought I'd leave the folks with. You've been open about being in recovery from panic and anxiety, sure. and it's very beautiful and inspiring to see a distinguished scientist being open about their own journey. So thank you for that. What's a recent change you've made in your life, a concrete change you've made in your life that's helped you in your own recovery? Well, I'm trying to focus more on the people that I love and not, you know, I, I spend a lot of time during the day trying to do loving things for people around the world. 
of, you know, I, what I'm doing right now, I would consider that. We would too. You know, we spend an hour together. Uh, what is it for? There's no, there's no money that will come. I'm not trying to get famous. Such kind of, no, I'm hoping that a few human lives might be in some tiny way a little better. And will it ever be noticed or thought about? No, probably not. But I know. And sometimes I can get so focused that the people closest to me are, are put second when they need to be first. So it's a very common failing, I think. And it's very like me failing. Uh, you know, it's something I've been doing my whole life. And I can have kindness for it, understanding for it. I can see some features of my own family of origin that led to that. And I don't want to have my development at age 74, which is what I am, stop there. I mean, I, I want to do a better job of uh, letting the people who are closest to me know that they're loved. And sometimes that means putting down the laptop and not answering that next email or saying to the next podcaster, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. <laughs> or at least not for the next three months. That's beautiful. Very inspiring. And especially on that note, I want to be mindful of your time. It's been a real pleasure. It's a gift to have that experiential guide that you gave us. Before you go, any final words, any parting thoughts? Well, I would say, I mean, if you're interested in my work, you can find me easily. If you want to follow it, I'll send you something about once a month. I never spam people. Go to stephencahayes.com and say, yes, please send it to me. Or just Google it and you'll see it's all out there. Act, psychological flexibility. It doesn't have to be with me or my courses or books or whatever. You'll find there's vast amounts of materials out there for free or near free from the World Health Organization on down. And so if there's something in here that I've said that resonates, that somehow you think like, hmm, that's interesting, I'll just ask you to pursue the interest and uh, see where it takes you. Dr. Stephen Hayes, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Peace, love, and life, my friends. Be well. That's my interview with Stephen Hayes. I hope you enjoyed it. So once again, that new paradigm for psychotherapy he mentioned is called process-based therapy. Unfortunately, we didn't really have that much time to discuss it in the interview, but there's plenty of writing on it, including one very good book that Professor Hayes co-authored. I'll link to all of that in the show notes. So check it out there if you're a clinician, if you're learning psychotherapy, or if it's just something you're interested in. Secondly, I hope it was helpful to go through a top-level summation of some of the key principles found in ACT in acceptance and commitment therapy as they apply to something like addiction. In particular, this notion of psychological flexibility. Once again, Professor Hayes' summation of that was open, aware, and active in a values-based life. Those are the three pillars summarizing what can be a pretty big and hairy concept. If you're interested in learning more or diving more into that, I'll also link to some of Professor Hayes' books in the show notes. And finally, I really love that exercise. I found it incredibly helpful, that self-perspective taking exercise. If you had the chance, I hope you did too, but let me know. This is the first time on the podcast, as far as I can remember, that someone did a guided visualization or a guided meditation. If that's something that 
you liked, if it's something you'd like to see more of, then uh, please drop a line. And in particular, what you're looking for, what would be helpful, because that will help me. I, I have had several spiritual teachers and other folks on the podcast, and it strikes me that this is a nice thing to deliver over a podcast. So once again, you can find all my information over at carlericfisher.com. There you can also sign up for my email list and you'll immediately get a free guide about the many pathways to recovery and stay up to date with latest episodes and other notes. If you're finding this podcast useful, please help me get the word out by subscribing on your podcast player, leaving a rating and review, and sending this episode to just one other person you think would benefit. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It isn't medical or clinical advice, and the content is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have questions, please consult a medical professional. Conflicts of interest are an important topic in addiction and recovery. For now, this podcast is just me bringing these conversations to you ad-free for their own sake. I do have a list of disclosures about my work and positions on my website, which I will keep updated. <laughs>